please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. In the early 1990s, a mom in Houston named Wanda Holloway really, really, really wanted her daughter to make the cheerleading team. And so she came up with a plan to improve her daughter's odds for making the team. Uh, She decided to hire a hitman, uh, not to kill one of her daughter's competitors, that'd be a little too extreme, but to kill the mom of one of her daughter's competitors, thinking that if the mother was killed, the daughter would be, be too distraught to try out, wouldn't come to tryouts, and her daughter would have a better chance to make the team, right? True story. And, and you know, you hear that and you say, seriously, like, in what universe could you conceive of such a plan and think that that's somehow a good idea, right? I, I mean, anytime I, I hear stories like that, I, I'd say, and they're crazy people in the world. They're evil people in the world. Thank God I'm not like them. Right? Don't you ever think that? I mean, be honest. Right? There's, a, there's a bit of Pharisee in all of us that says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man, or thank you, God, that I'm not like Wanda Holloway. Those are the evil people, but I'm the good. Honestly, we, we do have those thoughts. We think there are certain things that I'm capable of doing that are bad, but there are a lot of things that I'm, I'm completely incapable of. I, I couldn't sink that low. I couldn't fall that far that fast. Really? Well, Genesis chapter 4 is, is really kind of one of those stories. It's just, it's just crazy. We move from Eve taking a piece of fruit to one brother killing the other, and we're tempted to look at that story and say, well, <laughs> I'm not Cain. Thank goodness I'm not Cain. Ever wondered though, why did God include that particular story? I don't think it's simply because that's what happens next. I think it's included to demonstrate to us, beyond a shadow of doubt, the incredible destructive power of sin. And to see how how quickly and how deeply sin permeates human nature. And to remind us that our adversary, the devil, is deeply, deeply committed to our destruction. I want you to read with me again the curse upon the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, who was a physical manifestation of our adversary, the devil, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, warfare, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The serpent is told and we learn through this curse that there will be constant warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But we're also given hope that one who comes from that woman will ultimately crush the serpent. Now obviously Satan knows this prophecy, does he not? He was there face to face with God and he heard God telling him directly, you will be destroyed by the seed of a woman. A man who comes from Eve and her line, her descendants will utterly and completely destroy you, crush you on the head. He knows that prophecy and so you understand his logic. If I can destroy mankind, then mankind cannot destroy me. And so the history of mankind is this story of a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And what we see in Genesis chapter 4 is Satan strikes first. I want you to read with me Genesis chapter 4 
in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought from the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. Chapter 4 actually begins with hope, doesn't it? We've got this prophecy of the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Adam believes that. He names his wife Eve. She's the mother of all living. She will produce that offspring that will crush the serpent. And then sure enough, chapter 4 opens and Eve has a child. And you know, anytime a child is born, it's, it's, a, it's thrilling, it's exciting, it's wonderful. I, I actually got a picture last night from some friends who just had a baby, you know, and husband and wife are, they're laying there in the hospital bed and they've got their baby and they're smiling and, you know, but I know that just minutes earlier, they were not smiling, right? I mean, it was, it was pain, but the pain passed and now there's just utter and complete overwhelming joy. And can you imagine the joy at that very first birth? As Adam and Eve experienced this This miracle, a child came from her body. She's exuberant. She cries out. She says, yes, God made the first man, my husband, Adam, but with God's help, I have made the second. And that prophecy had to be fresh on her mind. Yes, now God is beginning to fulfill this promise that one will come from me and he will crush my adversary, my enemy who destroyed my life. And then her joy is compounded. She has a second son, double trouble against Satan. She's got to be just thinking, this is wonderful. God is fulfilling his promises. Two sons. Two sons raised by Adam and Eve. Two sons raised in the same environment, the same family. But with one son, things went horribly wrong very quickly. What happened? What happened to Cain? I want us to trace this morning this this downward spiral of Cain's sin. Read with me again verse 3. It says, It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought from the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. Why did God have no regard for the offering of Cain? You know, Moses doesn't really tell us directly. He gives us a little hint, though. He says, Cain brought an offering. He just brought an offering. But Abel brought the best. Abel brought the the firstborn. He brought the very best of his flocks, and he gave to the Lord the the fat portions, which I know, know in our culture, fat's bad, right? We cut off the fat. But when you're reading the Bible, think fat is good. Right? It's, it's the, the best parts, the best animals, the best that he has to offer, whereas Cain's attitude is he's just going through the motions of worship. And we get a further hint about what was deficient in Cain's offering from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So, Abel made an offering by faith, but faith in what? Well, if we read just two verses later, verse 6, it says, 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe two things. First, that God exists, and second, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I have a question for you. Did Cain believe that God exists? Of course. Cain had spoken with God. Cain had no doubts about the existence of God, but Cain did not believe in the goodness of God. This is the beginning of Cain's downward spiral of sin. He doubts the goodness of God. He did not believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Oswald Chambers once said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. This is where sin starts. Sin starts small and becomes great. And this is where we are deceived Because in our own lives, sin can start small, but then it can completely overwhelm us. Think about Eve in the garden. God had said to her and to her husband, from any and every tree of the garden you may eat, eat, eat freely, just enjoy it. However, there is just one tree there in the center of the garden. Just don't eat from the one. And when Satan came in and he began to tempt Eve and to deceive Eve, he tried to get her to doubt the goodness of God. You know, Eve, the fact that there's one tree from which God will not give you the fruit, that demonstrates that he is withholding from you. Eve, are you sure God is good? The root of sin is the suspicion that God is not good. And so Cain reasoned in his mind, well... (laughs) I can't trust God. God will certainly be stingy with me, so I will be stingy with God. I will go through the motions. I'll do my duty. I'll bring an offering, but not the best. Abel believed in the goodness of God. God is the rewarder of those who seek him. And look at all that God has to offer. Let me bring him my best. Let me show God how deeply I love him and I trust him. But Cain took the first step down the pathway of sin, and he distrusted the goodness of God. Second, he indulged his anger. Again, verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Literally in Hebrew, it says, Cain became very hot. You ever gotten really angry? I mean, really angry. You get steamed, and and how do you feel? Well, your head gets red. Your face gets red. You can feel the heat begin to build. Cain is very angry, and he drops his eyes. He cannot even look God in the face any longer. Because he's angry that God has not accepted his offering. He's angry that he got caught in half-hearted, indifferent worship. He blames God for not accepting the offering. God, I brought you what you asked for. And you have rejected it. And it all began simply with the suspicion that God is not good. Have you ever wondered if God is good? You ever struggle with that when you've asked for something, when you've wanted something so deeply and God didn't come through? And you don't check that doubt and remind yourself of the abundant provision of God. And instead you begin to indulge in anger. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Cain becomes very angry, but God offers him a way out. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? 
Whenever God asks a question like this of a person, it's an opportunity to repent. God came to Jonah. Jonah, do you really have good reason to be angry? Cain, this is your moment. This is your opportunity. Turn, remember that I am good. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up again? Won't you be restored to joy? And if you do not do well, here's the warning. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin's desire is to dominate you, to control you, to destroy you, to corrupt you. Cain, you better get a grip on this. Sin is crouching at your door. About a month ago, I got an article from one of our members, which let me just put in a plug here. You see something you think might be an interesting illustration? Just send it on. This proved to be a, a great illustration In the article, apparently in the U.S. it's become popular to crossbreed domestic cats with wild cats. Okay, Uh, One of these is called a toiger. Get it? It's not a tiger, it's a toiger. I know, that was pretty stumped. Really, it's a ridiculous idea. The whole concept is crazy. I mean, cats are kind of worthless anyway, but to make them bigger, (laughs) right? I mean, so they're breeding these super huge cats. I actually, I got it. An image for you here. This is a, a savanna. Uh, these are illegal now in, in eight states, right? But people will travel hundreds of miles, thousands of miles across states, and they will pay literally thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars for these cats. They're illegal in many states because they can kill a deer or a kid. I mean, again, it's kind of like, okay, whoever thought this would be a good idea at all to have, to create such a thing and then to keep it as a pet in your house. But you know, this is sometimes how we approach sin. Let's just, let's just, nice sin, keep it as a, a pet. I can control it. I can manage it. It can't overwhelm me. I'll keep it under control. I'll keep it on a leash. It's just a manageable sin. God says to Satan, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to destroy you. Master it, Cain. I can't help but think of Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Story of Cain and Abel is placed in the Bible to remind us that Satan is utterly and completely committed to our corruption and our destruction. And as soon as we say to ourselves, no, that could never happen to me, we are in a very, very dangerous place. Cain has a moment, he has an opportunity where God has come to him and he said, hey, Cain, straighten things out. Trust me, I'm good. But instead, Cain indulges his anger and he goes deeper and deeper, deeper into his anger and his hatred. And it overflows in his relationship with his brother and he kills him. Read to me chapter four, verse eight. Cain told Abel, his brother, about what the Lord had told him. And then it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. You know, what strikes me about that verse is that it's so short. 
that there's so few details. It doesn't say how he killed him or exactly where he killed him, how long it took. Just, he killed him. So here we've moved from Adam and Eve rebelling against God's authority. You know, God might not be good and we can be God. We can be in control and taking the fruit, rebelling and casting us under the curse. But it's just a piece of fruit, right? And now we're at murder, right? We don't, we don't move from fruit to little white lie to stealing a piece of candy, but murder. Because that is how powerful sin is. He kills his brother. Why? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this observation. He says, why does Cain murder? Ultimately, it's because of hatred toward God. He's ultimately angry toward God. Commentator Kent Hughes said, murder is an act of hatred toward God for making or accepting another who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honors that we do not have or someone who stands in our way and we're angry at them because we are angry at God. God has not given us what we long for, what we desire. And so we choose to take because God has set a boundary and we say that boundary must prove that God is not good. God is withholding and we become angry at God and that anger at God is reflected in our relationships with other people. I want you to remember for a moment, think for a moment about the example of David and Bathsheba. Remember, David is, is at the palace and he looks down and he sees on the roof a beautiful woman. She's bathing and he says to himself, I want that. And God says, no. And he says, well, I'm going to take it anyway. God has set a boundary. No, David, no. David says, yes, I will. I will take it. And so he takes the wife of Uriah. And then to not get caught, he takes the life of Uriah. And he's confronted with his sin. Remember, Nathan comes in and he says, David, I need to tell you a story. Something bad has happened in your kingdom. There's a man who's he's wealthy. He's got all kinds of flocks and herds. And a traveler came to visit him. And rather than taking one of his many lambs and preparing it for supper for this traveler, he went to this neighbor who is poor, who had just one lamb, one single lamb that was like a pet for their family. And he took that man's single lamb and killed it to prepare a meal. David, what do you think should be done to this man? And David said, that man deserves to die. David is incensed. He is so angry. And Nathan says, David, wake up. You are the man. God has given you the kingdom. And at that point in time, David had at least six wives and many concubines, not to mention a palace and wealth and power. And what have you done, David? You have taken. Because you did not trust that I am good. Because you were not thankful for all that I had given. Instead, you said, I must take. We hear that story and we say... I'm not, I'm not David, thank goodness. And I'm not Cain, I'm not a Cain, I'm not a David. I could never go that low. I could never fall that far, that fast. Really? First John, let me read you Psalm 51. When David was confronted, unlike... Uh, Eve, and unlike Cain, he said this, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Had David not wronged Bathsheba? Well, certainly he had wronged Bathsheba. Had David not wronged Uriah? Well, of course. I mean, 
the dude's dead. He'd wronged him, right? What he's saying is primarily and fundamentally, and first and foremost, the wrong was against God because my anger was against God and it poured out onto others. And we say, I couldn't do that. First John 3. It says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You ever hated somebody? Well, let's take it down a step. Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, have you ever been really, really angry? Because you wanted something that someone else had or someone was standing in your way or somebody was blessed and you were not. John says, that's murder. Obviously, your brother circumstantially is better off if you don't literally murder him, right? What John is saying is the attitude in your heart is exactly the same when you hate and when you murder. What it is is it's believing that first and fundamental lie, the big lie, the mother of all lies, that you can be God, that you know best about your life. And when God says no, the best thing for you to do is to take. Okay? It's to take. Interestingly, John relates this to Cain. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. He was of the evil one because he believed the lie the big lie that you can be God and that you have a right to take. And so rather than repenting at this moment, he continues down this downward spiral. He follows the pattern of his parents. And when confronted by God, he denies responsibility. Read with me verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he lied and he said, I don't know. And why should it matter? Am I my brother's keeper? He outright lies to God. He dismisses the significance of the issue. He tries to bury his sin literally and figuratively, and so God judges him. Verse 10, God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And do you notice that Ultimately, this judgment is merciful upon Cain because he should have died. But God spared his life and he said, instead, you're just going to wander and you're going to have a hard and challenging life. The the earth won't yield its produce. It'll be difficult for you, but he should have died. Do you see the mercy even in this judgment? And now we would think, well, certainly Cain will respond and he'll say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for not putting me to death and giving me more years on the earth. But how does Cain respond? Verse 13 says, Cain said, God, you've overstepped your boundaries again. My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground. From your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. God, you are not just. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Amazingly, God, again, doesn't slay him, but provides him with grace. Verse 15. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. But what was the sign? What was the mark? Well, some rabbis used to say it was a big dog. (laughs) He walked around with a big dog to protect him. I think it was a tattoo. So don't mess with Cain, right? Or else God will, I mean, he had to... I don't know. Who knows? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the mark is. The point is, in God's grace, he protected this murderer. 
What's amazing is even after God has poured out this protection upon him, there's no repentance, there's no remorse, there's no admission of wrong ever. He's just sad that he got caught. And what he does is he leaves the presence of the Lord and he creates a whole society, the first society, the first culture, and it lives in rebellion against God. Read with me, verse 16. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. To move eastward in the Old Testament means to move away from the presence of God. Take note of that every time you're reading through the Old Testament text. Geographically, when you move toward the east, you're moving away from God. And he moves into the land of Nod, which is literally the the land of wandering. Verse 17, Then Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So instead of continuing to wander, he says no to God, and he builds a city. And he begins to have offspring. And his offspring appear to be successful. We have artists, there are craftsmen and musicians and farmers and ranchers and technology is developed. But these are ultimately not the things that demonstrate the health of a culture, are they? We look at the people. Okay, the offspring of Cain. Look at the kind of man he produces. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, plural, he's the first polygamist, one is not enough, I will take more. He said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He's a violent, brutal man. This is not proportional justice. He says, there's a man who wounded me, and so I killed him. A boy hurt me, he injured me, and so I killed him. He's committed multiple murders. He has multiple wives. He's a degenerate man. And so here we are. (laughs) with One son killed, the other son corrupted. How will God fulfill his promise? God renews the promise because he renews the seed that comes from the woman. He replaces Cain with a son called Seth. Verse 25. It says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me an offspring or a seed in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. First stage in the renewal of the seed is a new beginning, Seth, which means appointed. God has appointed. Abel was the righteous line. Cain revealed himself as being in the line or the way of the serpent. And he killed his brother, so God replaced him. And from Seth, we have a righteous line that begins to develop. And their activity changes. Their activity changes. Rather than walking in the way of Cain, they begin to worship the Lord. Verse 26 says, To Seth, to him a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, which in the Old Testament means to worship. They called upon the name of the Lord. They called the Lord the Lord. They let God be God. They said, we will not believe that fundamental lie that we can be God, nor will we distrust God in his goodness. We will worship 
And so there's hope again. And in chapter 5, we see the generations of Adam and the expectation that from Adam through Seth will come that righteous seed which will crush the head of the Satan, the serpent. But what we see time and time again is a generation ends like this, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died eight or nine times. The conclusion is the same. We're hoping, we're expecting that one will come, but he doesn't come. He died. There's just one exception in this whole process. A man named Enoch. Verse 24. says, so all the days of, uh, verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's all we know of Enoch. That's it. Why is he inserted there? I think to make a really important point, which is God can overcome death. Enoch walked with God, and God took him to be with him. Death is not the final answer. God doesn't do this for everyone. He actually, we only see it him doing it a, a couple other times. Elijah, maybe Melchizedek, three people out of all of humanity. But it makes a point. God has the power over death. One other notable person in this genealogy that we're introduced to is Noah. Verse 29 says, Now his father, Lamech, a different Lamech, called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The name Noah Uh, Noach means literally rest. His father is a child and it's a wonderful day and there's great hope and he looks at this son and he says, perhaps this one is the one who will give us rest. That is victory over the curse from the toil of our hands. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the chosen seed. little foretaste, it's not. Noah does some amazing things, but... Uh, He's also a deeply flawed individual. But humanity has always been looking for the one. See it throughout the Bible. Is this the one? Is this the one? There's great disappointment. But always looking, always hoping that someone will sweep in and give us victory. So we don't live with struggle and frustration and temptation and death any longer. Several years ago, I was reading uh, Sports Illustrated magazine. It's in 1996. An amazing statement in Sports Illustrated. Sometimes you see theology everywhere. Tiger Woods was on the cover and they were interviewing Tiger's dad, Earl Woods. And Earl said this. He said, Tiger will do more than any other man in history to change the course of humanity. It's a very humble man. Because he's qualified through his ethnicity to accomplish miracles He's the bridge between East and the West. There is no limit because he has the guidance. I don't know yet exactly what form this will take, but he is the chosen one. He'll have the power to impact nations, not people, nations. The world is just getting a taste of his power. It's not Tiger. (laughs) It's not Noah. We know that it's Jesus. We know that it's Jesus. He is the one. He's the chosen one. And we live right now in the midst of this this battle, this conflict. And what we see at the beginning of chapter 6, we don't have time to dive into it, is 
when killing the seed didn't work, then Satan steps in and he begins to corrupt the seed, the righteous line of Seth. But God hasn't given up, nor has Satan given up. We live in the midst of this tension and conflict, knowing that Jesus Christ has performed the ultimate act and accomplished for us the ultimate victory by dying on the cross and crushing the head of the serpent. And one day we will live in that day of rest. The curse is removed and there are no more tears or crying or sorrow or pain. And that is our hope. If I could, would the men go back and prepare communion for us? And as they're going back, I want to make a few application points from this message. Three applications for us. First, beware of sin. Second, guard your heart. Third, receive God's grace. And I admit that when I get an email that has lots of exclamation marks, I go, come on. (laughs) Don't be dramatic. But this deserves three exclamation marks, right? Beware of sin. The moment you begin to say, thank God I'm not like other men. Thank God I'm not like other women. Thank God I'm not like Wanda Holloway or Cain or David. You are in danger. I can promise you David never in his wildest dreams imagined that he would commit adultery and then murder. But once sin steps in and it takes a grip on your life and you don't immediately root it out, then it puts you on a pathway that can destroy you. Beware and don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't say that could never happen to me. It's the most foolish thing that we could say. Second, guard your heart. When you begin to hear that still small voice of the spirit saying, you're doubting me. You're distrusting my goodness. Listen to the voice of the spirit and remember Not your circumstances, but the cross of Christ. It is the cross of Christ that proves to us the goodness of God. He gave his only son to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could live forever in perfect circumstances. Third, receive God's grace. Read with me again chapter 4, verse 14. This is Cain speaking. He says to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. From, the, from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And what's interesting is what Cain actually feared did not come upon him, did it? What's remarkable is what Cain feared actually fell on Jesus Christ. And the curse that should have fallen on Cain fell on Christ. Jesus was a wanderer with no home and nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was found and he was killed. Jesus was hidden from the face of God. As he hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you turned your face away from me? Why have you forsaken me? See, that's the essence of the gospel message. That the curse that should have fallen on Cain, the curse that should have fallen on us for our sin, instead has fallen on Jesus Christ. And the moment that we believe, we enjoy the benefit of the curse falling on him. Jesus died in our place. Our debt of sin is removed, and we have life that lasts forever. And so as we share in communion this morning, we are remembering that the curse fell on Jesus, and the cost for him was his very life. His body broken and suffering, his blood poured out, payment for our sin. And so what I'd like for us to do as the men's service is simply take a few moments and let's, let's give thanks for that. And let's listen for that voice of the Spirit that may be saying to you this morning, You're doubting my goodness. Turn.
the men come forward in service and once we've all been served, we'll take the elements together. God is always faithful to his promises. And so he sent a man, his only son, born of a woman. His only son taking on human flesh to do battle with our adversary, the devil. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin. And he was raised from the dead, reminding us that he has conquered sin, he has conquered death. The bread reminds us of the body of Christ. Let's take it together. Just as the bread reminds us of the body of Christ and his suffering, the cup reminds us of the blood of Christ poured out to pay our sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that your son took on human flesh so that he could fulfill the promise and do battle against our adversary. We thank you that he has won. Father, we praise you for the cross of Christ. We thank you, Father, even as we look at this very dark, dark chapter of human history, that we have the hope that Christ has overcome. And Father, we pray that we would leave here sober-minded, reminding, being reminded by your Spirit that, that sin is powerful and also that your grace is greater. Father, I pray that we go out this week in the strength of Jesus Christ and in his wisdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.